Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. It's the Adweek Podcast, and we are celebrating our 50th episode. And so today we're going to break format a little bit. Uh, instead of bringing you news and ads of the week and all that fun stuff we do each week, we're going to have even more fun. We are uh, we have been soliciting questions from you, the listeners, from uh, our fans and social media. And uh, we've gotten some really uh, interesting questions, quite a range, and we're going to try to answer as many as we can. Uh, with me to help accomplish this goal is our managing editor, Steph Patrick. Stephanie, welcome back to the show. Hello. It's so good to be back. Thank you. We've got a lot to tackle today. I'm very excited. Steph runs our news operation, uh, and so she will hopefully have some great insights on some of this uh, if I do not. And also helping us out is Christina Monlos, a senior editor on brand marketing and a producer on the podcast. Christina, always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here. All right. Well, let's not delay. Let's dive on into it. Uh, Christina, you are going to kind of run us down the list here. Like I said, these are from all over, from Twitter, email. And so thanks again to everyone who submitted. And general thanks to everyone for listening to the show. It's been a lot of fun uh, running this over the past year. So uh, get us started, uh, Christina. Yeah. um, Jake Fowler on Twitter asks, is subliminal advertising still a thing? Has anyone done it in an interesting way recently? So uh, subliminal advertising, I'll kind of start us off on this one. Uh, It basically flared up in the 1950s to 1970s. It was one of those where back when people weren't really sure, it's kind of like hypnosis, you know, how like people freaked out at different times. Like, what if you could hypnotize someone to kill? And, you know, now it's uh, then people like in the 50s, 70s, in addition to, I guess, being freaked out about marijuana, they were also freaked out about the idea of subliminal advertising. And so there was a bit of a freak out over it. But there wasn't really any data showing that it was actually effective. And we've all heard stories of like, oh, you hide a certain word in the shape of the ice in a print ad. Uh, But it really came to a head in the early 70s with TV ads. And there was a a famous ad uh, for the board game Husker Du, not not the band, the, the board game. And I think it's in like 1973. And they ran an ad that literally said, get it in huge letters, like hidden in these frames where you would have to actually stop it to see and people noticed somehow. And uh, it came to light and they admitted that they did it on purpose. Uh, and the the FCC was not cool with that. Uh, so the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, they ended up putting out basically a position paper, a, you know, a statement on subliminal advertising in 1974. It's still on their website. Like you can still find this thing. Uh, but basically, they said that it is uh, subliminal advertising is contrary to the public interest, and uh, they laid out some you know penalties for it. So basically, the broadcaster that runs a subliminal ad, an ad that's found to be uh, deceptively subliminal, uh, that they can lose their broadcast license, which you know 
ABC and NBC don't want to do. <laughs> like nobody wants to lose their FCC broadcast license. It's it's not illegal technically. Uh, it is in Britain and Australia. So we talk a lot on in Adweek about how Britain and Australia have like the advertising standards authorities, those ones who track like whether an ad is sexist or offensive or violate standards. We don't have anything like that in America. Uh, but so but they have banned it over there. Uh, here it's more just like you can get taken to court. Uh, and, you know, you are somewhat you don't have any First Amendment protection because it's seen as deceptive marketing and deceptive marketing is not protected by the First Amendment. Uh, but that's the FCC. So that's like broadcasting. The FTC, which actually oversees advertising, they've never said anything, period, about subliminal advertising. Uh, all they've really said is uh, deceptive ads are prohibited. And that's it. You know, they basically just <laughs> file it under deceptive ads. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, these days I feel like we see it a lot, but we see it as a joke. You know, we see it as an Easter egg where it's it's hidden in. Uh, Hotels.com's done some really fun stuff with uh, their Captain Obvious uh, and a few other campaigns like that. You know, but but I typically feel like that's the only place we see this. Do you guys, I don't know, have you heard about it coming up anywhere else? Not really. No. No. I, yeah, I, I don't think I've heard much about it recently either. I mean, it makes me think of like the Beatles era, you know, when you could <laughs> play the album backward and get a secret message. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I vaguely remember that Judas Priest, of course, had this like famous case where if you played their album backward, a secret message supposedly saying to kill yourself. And, and you may remember this was a big freak out in the 80s. Uh, the judge found that putting a backward message... It was like a weird mixed ruling. He basically said that there was no actual message hidden in the Judas Priest record, but he said if there had been, that they could have been liable. Um, it was it was so it was one of those things where it was kind of like the case law is weird because he basically said, well, there is no subliminal message on this album, but if there were, then yeah, I guess there could be a, a court case against this. So anyway, that's that's about it. But those are usually the case you hear about. I, I'd say that uh, it, socially, I feel like the place we see this most now is product placement. You yeah. know, like just you see something on the back shelf, or you see it in passing, or someone just kind of holds a bottle that says something. And and if if you can see the logo, no matter how brief, I think all of us kind of say, yeah, that's probably an ad. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> We're all right, getting what's... started early with that. It's great. What What is the next question, Christina? <laughs> The next question comes from Tammy Murphy via email, and she asks, do you think there will be ever be potential for an Adweek office in the UK, Adweek's British sister maybe? Uh, I implode with excitement at the thought. Tammy, we do not want you to implode. Like, <laughs> No. We do want you excited. Yes, that's true. Just short and of implosion. And I just want to be the first to volunteer to be uh, the, the UK bureau chief when Adweek does go, you know, across the pond. I mean, oh, you are on. the managing editor. You could make <laughs> that decision. <laughs> yeah, think larger, like Europe, Europe editor, EMEA editor, something like that. There you, you go. Can, you can go bigger. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know if we'd be allowed to talk about any strategies if we actually had one. Um, if we do, I don't, I don't think any of us are aware of it. I will say that London is a very crowded, the UK is a very crowded space uh, for publications like ours. You've got some really good pubs there. Uh, you've got some I'm not as much of a fan of, but, you know, you've got, more importantly, you've just got a huge number of publications covering marketing in the UK. And I think that's kind of what has probably kept us pretty focused. <laughs> I mean, America has just 
so much to cover. And of course, we also cover some in Canada and quite a bit internationally. But in terms of staking out a location there or, or launching like Adweek UK, I don't know. I don't know. It feels like we'd have we'd be slicing a very thin, you know, slice of pie, even thinner. Also, if we're going to open a new office, it should be in a better climate than New York. Like, it's <laughs> gross and rainy here today. It's probably gross and rainy in the UK. Why not shoot for, like, Australia or L.A. or... Hawaii. Yeah. All of those things. Hawaii. Basically, I want to go to the beach. <laughs> <laughs> so, Christina, getting, getting a vacation sounds a little cheaper than opening an entire overseas office. But, uh, Does yeah. it? <laughs> so, we'll, uh, we'll keep you guys posted if we do decide to expand overseas. Uh, I mean, we've looked at some interesting things. Uh, I'll leave it at that. All right. Um, what is the uh, next question, Christina? David Felton from London asks, what is programmatic advertising? All right, Steph, take it away. <laughs> okay, here we go. Let's see. Um, I feel like I've been lifting weights and like training to answer this question. Um, so programmatic advertising, as I understand it, is basically just allowing tech, allowing machines to place media buys. Um, you know, they do a lot of the grunt work in terms of, you know, matching the creative with the right demographic um, to meet, you know, the advertiser's goal. And um, it has meant, you know, some, some shrinkage in terms of um, media buying positions. But, you know, the counter argument is that it has freed up resources um, at agency to work on more of the strategy and creative side of things. And I, I will just say, I think that programmatic suffers from a bad name. I think it's one of those jargony terms that scares people and makes it sound like it's a much more complicated concept than it is. Yeah, it needs like a catcher name, like smartvertising. I don't know if that's not <laughs> right. it. That's not the one. Um, but no, you're right. It's a terrible name. And then people get really bogged down in the super jargon of it. Like, oh, are we talking direct programmatic or real-time bidding programmatic? You know, it's just like... Steph has covered all the most important aspects, which is that um, it is the automation of media buying, uh, of ad buying. So you used to have, you know, a person who would contact someone, and this still happens, like with things like billboards, usually, and and a few others. You know, you you, you have a relationship with one human talking to another human, and they say, okay, I want to spend this much money on your media outlet. The problem is now people interact with so many screens so many different softwares and social networks and all that. And you kind of want your ads to be everywhere or especially everywhere your target audience is. So, you know, it's like if Christina likes these seven sites and I'm targeting Christina, I, I want to be on those seven sites. But so humans can't do that. That's just, it's too much. It's spread too thin. It's not cost effective. So, you know, it makes sense for software to do this all automatically. And also software can detect, oh, hey, we're getting a lot better click-throughs on these ads. We're going to put more of our money and more of our, you know, spend or whatever into the, that ad. Uh, the downsides are, you know, Steph covered a few of them in terms of the, the impact on humans. I mean, of course, automation tends to remove some human jobs, but it also removes some human oversight. Uh, so you end up with things like the term that you hear thrown around a lot right now is brand safety, which is the idea of your ads showing up on bad content, violent content, racist content, Humans aren't going to buy ads on those things, <laughs> but uh, a robot is just going to be like, oh, there are views here. I will put ads on it. Um, Why is and, your robot, you know, suddenly uh, <laughs> Russian? Maybe No, he's is not that... Russian. He is robot. I was just, I don't know. Vlad the programmatic robot, you know. That is programmatic. 
Uh, I mean, it's like, you know, so so that's the big complaint we've seen is that by removing humans entirely, you end up with ads running in places they really shouldn't. Um, but uh, and so, yeah, it's created some of that. But in general, I, I don't think there's any escaping it. And I think, honestly, we're going to see more and more programmatic going into TV buying and outdoor and, you know, all this, like all of it's going to become programmatic. So if you are in the old industry of media buying and selling and you're not adapting to programmatic, you probably want to. All right. Uh, Christina, what's the next one? Oh, okay. The next one comes from Amy, a recent graduate via email. She asks, what is the best way to get on the creative team of an ad agency when you're a recent university graduate and have no direct experience? So I'll, I'll tackle this one because I was in this situation to an extent. I worked in newspapers for probably four years after graduating college, but then I lost my job, as many journalists do, and I ended up um, applying at an ad agency, except I had no experience whatsoever. So to them, I was the same as a college grad coming out. Uh, my writing experience probably gave me a little bit of a leg up, but not much. Um, I would say that the there are a few things. One is be willing to take a job that feels super low level. Uh, and if there's an agency you really want to work at, just take any job that can get you in the door. Uh, because as soon as a pitch comes along, they will want people who can write. They will want people who can do creative. Like, it, it, you know, there's there's no place where you won't be able to get some experience uh, writing or doing design if that's really what you want to do. You'll just probably have to do it, you know, kind of outside of your, your normal job hours. Uh, but, I mean, yeah, come in at a junior level. Take the opening that's at an agency you want to work in and, you know, be candid with them about your career aspirations. Don't tell them, like, oh, I'm taking this job because I love being a media planner. <laughs> and then you, you know, six <laughs> months later they find out you just wanted to be a creative. You know, be honest with them. Uh, but, uh, yeah, for me it was just about you really, if you don't have experience and you are applying for a job like this, because uh, it is definitely an industry that rewards experience. Like, oh, you did ads for these major brands? Cool. Come work for us. Until you have a portfolio like that, you have to do a lot of spec work. You have to uh, do a lot of free work, a lot of pro bono work for nonprofits, uh, basically anything you can to build your portfolio. Because if you don't have a good portfolio, even today with everything being digital, you're you're probably completely out of luck. So hopefully that is, uh, I don't know, hopefully that's helpful advice. Do you think that spec work should be, um, you know, uh, the traditional thirty-second ad, or should be, or should be something where it's more digitally focused. I ask because a friend of mine who is an actress, I I saw the other day that she was in this spec Tito's vodka ad, and it's like a solid minute long sort of thing. And I, I think that's cool, but I also wonder, you know, if if spec work is reflective of where the industry is going, should it be more digitally focused? I mean, I, I think best case, it, like your best case scenario is to have an ad week or whoever write it up, honestly, because <laughs> we, we, I mean, that's, yeah, it sounds maybe a little egocentric for us, but the reality has been there. We've written so many clever case studies of spec stuff that kids, you know, kids, young people have done. Uh, and the only reason that the agencies really contacted them or that they got jobs out of it is because we ended up covering it or whoever the advertising publication, you know, in, in your region is. Um and so because of that, I d no one's going to cover a spec 30-second spot. <laughs> you know, you just you don't have enough time in there to be clever. And a spec six-second spot, if you can prove how clever you are and that you are following. Like people right now, they want creatives who can do a six-second spot. That's the new hotness. So if you can do a series of six-second spots, I'll, uh, you know, 
uh, Geico or, or whoever that, uh, then yeah, you'll probably, you, you're proving your ability. Uh, if you're not going to do a six second, I would go like minute and a half, two minutes, <laughs> like just <laughs> go all in one way or the other to, to kind of prove you can do cinematic long form. But, uh, you know, spec, I think a lot of people still do print, even though, you know, you don't yeah. see that many print ads anymore. It's just the easiest. There's there's this cool Instagram. I don't know if you've seen it, but this woman who is a copywriter, I think she's based in California, but she's done this hundred days of feminist ads where she takes, you know, brands from all over and does uh, a tagline for them that's a bit more feminist than the ones that they have. And I think that's pretty fun. Um, that's kind of, you know... Uh, giving someone like a reason to write about it because for us like at at least the spec work that I've been pitched some of it is like oh okay this is this is a cool idea but it's it's not taking this brand or this um you know this kind of marketing outside of what we typically see and so it's harder for me to want to write something up if it doesn't feel super special. I don't know about you guys. Mm. But. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I, I think it comes down to kind of what you want to illustrate uh, when you're doing this kind of work. And, and I think if it's about getting a job, you know, but to me, then it's it's you should be proving your talent, your ability, or you should be proving your relevance, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can prove relevance, then like you're a hot commodity because the agencies live and creative directors live in constant fear of becoming irrelevant. Like that is their greatest fear in life. Um, so, you know, for, for what that's worth. Yeah. And right. I would just, oh. Oh, no, go ahead. <laughs> One more thing I would add to that is to take advantage of internship opportunities. I know it's not the the most glamorous route to take and internships get a lot of, you know, the programs get a lot of uh, flack for not paying well and things like that. But it really can be your best chance to get in the door at a big agency in particular. It can be harder kind of later in your career to get those kinds of opportunities that recent grads have. And if you can get in, you know, as an intern or as a very like low level position and make yourself invaluable in three months, (laughs) um, you know, most people I know have been able to turn that kind of opportunity into a job. So I just wouldn't, be, don't be afraid to start at the bottom, even if it's not exactly what you want to do and then show what you're capable of. I, I mean, the other thing we, we haven't really talked about is the fact that the, this kind of assumes that the creative team model is going to survive. The, the copywriter and an art director is the traditional model. It's been around since the Bill Burnbaugh days and uh, the you know, 1960s. It, it, I don't know if it will. Uh, you know, I mean, copywriters, we're seeing agencies have stopped even sometimes calling people copywriters or art directors because they feel it's too limiting. You know, they'll just call them creatives or uh, and and so I think that's it's worth taking a step back and really kind of just thinking about how you position yourself and not going too, too hard in on saying I want to be a copywriter on a creative team. Like if you're mm-hmm. a content uh, strategist, if you're a content creator that can mean all sorts of things. If you're a designer, that can mean all sorts of things. And so, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of reflecting kind of where the the trends are going. But eh, anyway, just a quick caveat there on on uh, the terms copywriter and art director seem to be, for now, uh, fading a little bit. But anyway. A dark right. caveat. 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, like the jobs are still there. It's just they're very different. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I forgot. I just realized that the list of questions that uh, Christina's reading from, I left off two. These were actually the first questions we got when we asked people oh, for for their questions. And so it had gotten buried in my inbox. Uh, but Laura King, who works at Twitter, had sent me uh, some really good questions. So I wanted to include those. Uh, one is a suggestion. She said, I would love it if you logged the time that you were covering specific topics in the episode descriptions. Uh, consider it done. Uh, so basically what that means is we're going to start putting in the show notes. Uh, we're going to basically say, here are the timestamps at which we talk about this topic and this topic. And I will do my best to be good about staying on top of that. But w- that sparked some cool internal conversation. And we all agree that if we have the time to put all that in, that uh, it would be very helpful. Because some of you who listen to this like certain parts of the show more than others or certain topics more than others. Uh, so that I was mean, great. I mean, you like a certain part of the show more than others. <laughs> well, sure. I like Ads to- of the week. But speaking of which, Tim, we didn't Ooh, Tim, Nudd's, Tim Nudd's not here. Uh, a, he, our usual co-host sadly could not be here for a 50th uh, episode. He is on vacation. But so sorry, Tim, that you can't be here for the fun. <laughs> uh, Laura also had a, another question. Do you have any plans to create a shorter form daily podcast? Um, no, uh, in the sense that I don't, I, I can't say we have any immediate plans, but if you have any thoughts on that, definitely drop us a note at podcast at adweek.com or hit me up on Twitter. I'm Griner, G-R-I-N-E-R, um, if there's an outcry for that. But I think we'll probably go more into the space of like working with something like an Alexa or a Google Home to basically help serve up daily headlines <laughs> more so than creating a whole new podcast just for daily marketing headlines. But it's a really good suggestion, and we will continue to think about it. So sorry I omitted those from our list of questions. But Christina, what else do you have? I have a question from Diana Maria Wien. What is uh, starting up your own ad agency like? And should you work at an established one before making your own? Um, So I started my own business after leaving an ad agency I worked at for about eight years. Uh, So I've not started my own agency specifically, but several of my friends have. Uh, So if the question is, you know, should you work at an established agency before making your own? I would say it is an unequivocal yes. You should certainly work at another agency before starting an agency. If you're coming out of college or switching careers and you're thinking about launching an agency, don't launch an agency. Launch a a startup, you know, launch a product or a service um, or a consultancy uh, if you're an expert in something. But don't launch an agency. The agency model is very difficult. It's not tremendously profitable. It's very labor-intensive, people-intensive. So, you know, yeah, I I would just say, like, if you look at all the people who have successfully created... So Eric Coleman, who created the Old Spice Man Your Man Could Smell Like, he's one of the most awarded creatives uh, in modern advertising. Uh, And he's he's not very old. I mean, he's probably in his early 40s, I would guess. Um, He just started his own agency. Uh, after, you know, he's worked at some of the best shops uh, in the world. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's he's just now starting his own. Droga, David Droga uh, had worked at several, um, you know, uh, all over the world uh, before launching Droga 5. He had quite a pedigree uh, by then. So, yeah, you, you don't see a lot of people just, I, I can't think of, honestly of any agencies where someone just emerged fully formed out of college or whatever and just started a successful agency. There are certainly probably some out there. 
Certainly. Yeah. I also want to note that um, Katie Richards has been working on a profile of Joan, which is, uh, you know, an agency that was founded last year. Um, So whenever we have that up, because it's, you know, it's looking at a newer agency founded by these um, two really cool creative women. um, I I think you should look out for that profile because that'll probably give you an idea of, you know, what what starting up your own ad agency can be like. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, uh, what is the next question? Casey Stegman on Twitter asks, with the growing trend of six-second video and longer-form brand films, what does the future hold for the traditional 30-second spot? I think this is a really interesting question. We had a story um, maybe a couple of weeks ago from our our tech editor, Christopher Heine, um, called Why Brands and Agencies Are Preparing for the Era of Six-Second Ads. It was an incredibly popular story. I think that everybody is really aware of this trend. And what Chris wrote about is that 2018 is really predicted to be the turning point where we're going to see this, you know, six-second ad trend come into full bloom. Um, this, you know, right now we're in an incubation period, but it's the pendulum is swinging for sure. And I think the question makes a good point point that you see trends on both sides of the spectrum. It's like really short or really long. And um, it, it is leaving people wondering if there's a space for something in the middle. Um, I, you know, I think I personally think that what brands are doing with six second ads is fascinating because when you put that kind of constraint uh, on on a project, the creativity can really be surprising and and captivating. Um, Michelin has a, an example of a six second ad that they did where you see a, a child dressed up as a tree and she's frowning, and you hear her dad's voice in the background saying, "You're going to make a great tree," something like that. And you know, I'll be there rooting you on. And her and you know, she her frown turns into a smile, and then you see tires pulling up somewhere, and that's the whole ad. It happens within six seconds, but it really, it's visually interesting because of the costumes. You, your mind is able to fill in the gaps of, of the plot. You know, this dad is going to go cheer on his daughter in a play. Um, and, and it works. And it's kind of amazing what is accomplished within six seconds. And there, we're seeing this, this kind of trend in other genres outside of advertising too. Um, Piper Kerman, who's known for writing the memoir, Orange is a New Black, her husband, Larry Smith, started this trend of the six-second memoir, where he came out with like a book of memoirs written, or, sorry, not six-second, six-word memoirs. So a book of memoirs that are all completed within six words. And legend has it that it has, it, it, it has its roots with Ernest Hemingway. Apparently, he was like sitting around the table with writer friends, and he said, I bet you all $10 that I can like write a, a, a novel in six words. And he, um, his, what he wrote was for sale, baby shoes never worn. And he like collected ten dollars from everybody. And it, same thing, it's like you can accomplish so much with so little. And really, the audience, the viewer, the reader, they can fill in the gaps of that narrative um, with their own minds. Yeah, I mean, I guess my take is just that thirty is too long to keep interest and too short to be cinematic. Uh, so it, it'll stick around just because American TV ad buys are still built around 30s, but that's going to change. I think you're going to see 6 and 15s are going to become the normal, and then what you do for online is going to be the 90s to 200 and whatever second um, long-form cinematic ad. Uh, those seem to be the trends we've been seeing in the last few years. And I, I think what you see with uh, – it's uh, Amazon Echo, right, has been doing the, the short-form – 
little examples of when you need to use the 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 Alexa. Uh, you know, those to me are some some of the best examples of of how you know you can get a lot done to Stephanie's point in a short amount of time. Yeah. And they've been like putting a bunch of those together into a 30 second spot so that it like, you know, it works for TV. But I don't know. I think I think we're going to end up seeing such a shift over the next couple of years because because of Facebook TV, because of the way that eyeballs are shifting um, to, you know, these digital platforms. I don't know. I have to say that I don't know about you guys, but the when you're watching like a stupid little Facebook video and it you've watched like four seconds of it and then it starts to scroll a 30 second ad for the last 50 seconds of the video like to be able to watch it I get so mad it's 30 seconds <laughs> for like a minute of a Facebook video that's what that's yeah what I don't know about you guys. And but. then you're not really watching the video. You're just like counting down the seconds and saying when yeah. will this be over. Although I, I wouldn't be surprised if I, – I could be wrong, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see this the pendulum like keep swinging back and forth because I think, you know, really short-form ads are interesting right now because they're different. They're not, you're, they're not what we're used to seeing. And then at some point we'll get sick of those and a 30-second ad is going to seem new again. So that's that, – that's my prediction. All right. Uh, what is the uh, the next question there, Christine? Um, Pia Isabel Lynn on Twitter asks, ads through the generations, question mark. What are uh, major differences in both the audiences and marketers in gens X, Y, and Z? That's a, that's a big topic. Um, just like ads through the years, you know, a recap. Yeah. And, <laughs> and just, you know, as we talk about on this podcast and in, definitely in Adweek, generalizing any of these generations is very difficult. Uh, that said, I think there's there's certain trends, especially when you look at uh, their app usage behavior. Uh, you know, you see Gen Z obviously not big fans at the moment of using Facebook, and they have still clung to Snapchat in a way that, uh, while Gen Y has really, I, I, I seems like, embraced uh, Instagram, uh, you know, a little more than and moving away from Snapchat. Uh but beyond that, I think the type of advertising, the biggest change I've seen is that Gen Z is being targeted more with influencers, uh, YouTube influencers, uh, social short form influencers, that a lot of you guys have probably all noticed this, the type of ads you see on Snapchat and, you know, you're seeing it popped up in Instagram stories to an extent, but is much more personality driven than, you know, content or storytelling driven. Um I, have you guys noticed that or am I am I way off? No, that's absolutely true. Um, there was this ad that Lauren wrote up. It was this um, thing that these influencers did for Ikea. And it was cool. It was, you know, it was interesting. Um, you were able to like switch between the different videos and sort of get like, uh, um, you know, what's it called? The like follow your own click your own story. Oh, choose your own adventure. Choose your own adventure is what I'm looking for. Um, and and it was it was fun, but it wasn't that special. And it blew up online because these people have like a million followers who are really into them. They are super excited about anything that they do, even if it's a kind of like fine IKEA ad. That being said, Working with IKEA, IKEA is also one of the brands where it's like, doesn't really matter what IKEA does, everyone loves it. So, 
I don't know. Steph, you just got done with our uh, marketing to millennial parents. Did anything you picked up in that that we didn't talk about on the uh, other week's episode about kind of general trends? You know, we covered a lot in that episode, but I think one of the big takeaways is how much um, Generation Y is into community um, versus Generation X. Um, Xers really would look to experts um, for advice while Y is looking to their peers. And I've read some recent research that um, Gen Z is is moving a little bit away from the, you know, prizing community over everything and putting a little bit more focus back on the individual. So that could be an interesting pivot. Um, also, you know, our one of our reporters, Sammy Main, went to um, a panel recently where they were talking about the differences between Gen uh, Y and Gen Z. And one they said is that, well, Gen Y is really passionate about social causes. Um, they tend to be, and some people might take offense to this, but they tend to be opinionated about it. They'll talk about it on social media. But Gen Gen Z is going to be more likely to actually get out and volunteer and do something about their opinions. Um, and their, you know, early research is showing that they're going to have kind of liberal values, but a more traditional kind of work ethic. Um, so so some some interesting differences coming down the road. Well, there's certainly a topic that we covered quite a bit on Adweek.com, so I encourage you to... Uh Keep an eye on that, and uh, I feel like we don't go a week. People have even said, oh, you guys must have a requisite once a week, uh, millennial versus Gen Z story. And it's like, well, <laughs> no, but it sure does come up a lot because marketers, uh, for all these reasons, are very interested in this topic. Uh, Christina, what's the next question? The next question comes from Tin Can Dan on Twitter. Uh, he asks – or. You know what? I'm not going to gender Tin Can Dan. I don't know Tin Can, can Dan. Tin Can could be Dan. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, they ask, what what's the future of the brick-and-mortar business look like in five years, in ten years? Um, I would say that one interesting thing that I've seen recently is a bunch of brands that seem to be um, online only are opening up brick and mortar stores. I saw this, you know, those suitcases that uh, the brand is called Away. Um, it's these it's yes. suitcases where you can. You I'm know, getting those ads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Those those suitcases, um, you know, I've seen a lot of people post on Instagram about them because you can charge your phone from the suitcase and it's also well designed and has this like cool minimalistic uh, minimalist aesthetic. Um, when I was in L.A., I saw they had, you know, a brick and mortar store that kind of looked like a um, maybe a, an art museum a little bit. And that's something I've seen quite a bit more of is like these online only brands opening up showrooms because lo and behold, people like to touch the stuff they're going to buy before they buy it. Um, I think that's the future of things is like that you're going to see some showrooms, but, you know, a lot of the buying will be done online. What about you guys? I think that's a really interesting point. Um, I to, to give you an example of that, last week I tried one of these e-tailers called M.M. Lafleur, which they'll, you know, a stylist will like send you work appropriate clothes and you receive them in the mail and it's instant gratification. And I received it in one of the sizes. I couldn't tell if it was right. And I called them and it turns out that they have a store in Manhattan where I can go try things on. So I heard about them through a Facebook ad. I ordered something online, but ultimately they're driving me to the store. Um, and it's interesting. We did 
did, you know, we did a spotlight on um, marketers in Atlanta not not too long ago, a couple months ago, and I talked with a marketer from Carter's who said that they really used to segment like their e-commerce effort versus their brick and mortar effort, and they've combined those two so that they're they're really looking at it holistically, and they think it's important to you know the two are playing off of each other, and if someone is driven to buy online, it's not a loss for brick and mortar or vice versa. Like they can both really fuel each other. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we're going to see more boutique style Warby Parker type, um, you know, stores where it's not about size; it's about kind of letting you, to Christina's point, getting your hands on stuff and and kind of conveying that. Uh, aesthetic in, in a physical space. Um, I think th- I think it's like halfway between a pop-up and a retail chain, you know, so there may be multiple locations, but not a ton, which creates that exclusivity, you know, that like, ooh. And so they, not to say Warby Parker is still that exclusive, but, you know, when they opened one in my town, uh, it was a big deal uh, because, you know, it's kind of like how it used to be having an Apple store in your, in your, in your city, um, like in mid-market cities. That's a very rare thing to have an Apple store. Uh, and these days it's a little more common. Uh, but, you know, so I think you'll find you'll continue to see that those kinds of retailers do very well. The ones that try to get like 3,000 square feet of space in a closed air mall. Uh, obviously, those days are done, um, and, I, and I personally don't know if open-air malls will, will succeed all that much. This has been a brutal year uh, for retail. You hear the phrase retail apocalypse thrown out a lot. Uh, a lot of these chains that tried growing very aggressively are paying the price this year, like Gander Mountain and a bunch of you know these ones who said, oh, we can open mega stores because you, you got to go big if you're going to go brick and mortar. Well, it turns out you know, not so much because there's plenty of competition out there. So, uh, so yeah, I, th- I think those who go small will probably do better. I also think it's dependent on what your actual product is. Um, I don't know if this has been true for you guys, but makeup stores um, like Ulta and Sephora, their growth has been, I, I mean, I think right now it's Ulta's that that um, Ulta is beating Sephora, but you know you're still seeing more and more brick and mortar sh- makeup shops open up, and I-, I would just say I I think it depends on what you're selling. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a good point. I mean, like Birchbox, which is a you know makeup and beauty product company designed you know for the male, they ended up opening a shop in Soho because while you know maybe you would order samples of something, I don't want to spend like fifty bucks on a full bottle of, of something I can't try out first. Yeah, and it's gotten to where it's like every new retail place I see pop up, it doesn't even say what it is; it's just like a random word, and I always assume that that means it's like cosmetics or luxury. <laughs> you know, like if I have no idea what this even is, then chances are it's a very expensive luxury or the uh, you know, luxury fashion or cosmetic slash perfume store or something. But yeah, those are the ones that seem to be popping up all over in uh, in my area. I can't wait for Airbnb to like open up their own like, oh, we have experiences now and we're going to, you know, tailor those experiences to you. And in this pop up shop, I'm going to tell you those. And then your grandparents will be like. That's a travel agent. It's just a travel <laughs> agency, you guys. <laughs> it's going to circle back. No, no, we invented this. <laughs> uh, all right. What is uh, the next question, Christina? Oh, the next question comes from David Greiner. Hey, that's me. Oh, that's you. Um, 
And you ask, what have you learned from podcasting? Do you want to answer it first? Should we? Should no, we? Oh no, I want you guys oh, to answer. Okay. Christina, you uh, you have been oh, a producer man. on this podcast. You were a one of the three guests on the first episode ever a year ago, and you've been on most, probably the you know second only to me and Tim in terms of being on the most. What have you learned from being on this podcast and from organizing a podcast? Um, I have learned don't go back and listen to the first episode of your Ooh. podcast. Yeah, do um, not. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, what I have learned is that audio storytelling is super different, and that. You know, some people who are really great with the written word um, might freeze up in front of a mic or might be uncomfortable. It takes a little bit to to not freak out about the fact that you've got this, you know, silver orb in front of you and the fact (laughs) that people are going to listen to your voice. Um, You know, uh, also putting together the the audio back end of this is very interesting for me it's something I didn't know how to do and you know learning how to do that is fun learning a new skill is great and you know um people like different forms of content and being able to see um, that people actually listen to us and want to you know um engage with the ad week um family, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In this way has been really lovely. And I just, I just really appreciate that. um, We've all had the opportunity to learn and grow in this way. And that may be the most positive thing I've ever heard you say. Wow. (laughs) That was beautiful. (laughs) Single tear rolls down my cheek. Uh, Stephanie, I, I know you haven't been on uh, all that many times, but you've always been great uh, to have on here. Uh, you seem like a natural on it. What have you learned from podcasting? It's interesting. I mean, you know, the, the technical aspect has been fascinating for me because this has been my first foray into podcasting. And, and like Christina mentioned, it can be hard. You know, the, the physical instruments like the microphone can get in our way. Like I have to be talking around the microphone so the sound is okay, which means I have to, I can't look directly at Christina. I have to kind of like <laughs> look at her out of the side of my eye. It's not the most natural way to have a conversation. So just that, getting used just, to that's that. That's good advice in general. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Just look at someone out of the side of your eye. Yeah, there's there's like constant side eye during the podcast. Um, and I will say too, you know, as as a journalist, it's really nice to come on and talk about stories that I've reported or had a hand in editing because there's so much that ends up on the cutting room floor that we can't get into the story. And this has been a really wonderful um, venue for just sharing some of the behind the scenes stuff because we, we get a lot of great insights that we just can't always pass on um, in print. And so it's great to be able to talk about them here. And I, I certainly enjoy listening when reporters get a chance to kind of talk about, um, you know, what they learned during a reporting process of a, of a project. How about you, David? What have you learned? Uh, you know, I, I guess the thing that is most heartwarming to me is that the original concept of this podcast, the reason that we made it a, a, a panel podcast and we don't have a lot of guests, we don't do interviews on here. And those were kind of what people expected an ad week podcast to be. Oh, we're going to interview, you know, leaders in advertising. We, I mean, we're certainly going to be rolling out some products like that. But I wanted to convey my favorite thing about working at Adweek. I've been writing for Adweek for over 10 years. I've been full-time for probably, I think me and Christina started right around the same time, so about four years. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Stephanie not long after that. And uh, I, I feel like the best part has been the sense of community, the sense of 
that we all respect each other. We all really like each other. Um, and that's something that I've worked in a lot of newsrooms, and that is certainly not always the case. I know each of us has. Uh, and it's it's great. I mean, we talk all day on Slack, and I crack up. I mean, I've literally cried sitting in, you know, sitting at my computer just laughing so hard of the way that everyone kind of riffs on each other. And that that sense of, you know, camaraderie, I think, is what makes Adweek so special for me. And I think it really improves our content uh, and, the you know, just the morale in general. Uh, so that's what I wanted to convey. And that's why it's been so fun to have so many different people from across the Adweek family, uh, you know, cycle in and out to the show. And the feedback we got has been so wonderful. I mean, we have a five-star average rating, which, you know, this is not a super professionally produced podcast. You know? We're like keenly aware <laughs> that we kind of wing it each week. Uh, we're not audio <laughs> professionals. Uh, no. But we are very honest about, you know, our opinions and about what, uh, you know, we're, we talk to everyone the way that we would, you know, talk to ourselves. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's I would say that 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 idea has has paid off. Um, people have generally been really positive and really warm in the feedback we've gotten. Uh, and, yeah, I've learned just a ton on the practical side of how to run a podcast and how it's hosted and how it's distributed and how networks work, uh, which we're not on one. Um, but we nope. certainly kind of looked at that. Uh, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things. I'm glad we did it. I'm glad we tried it. And it's been, it's amazing to kind of blink and we're 50 episodes deep. And I encourage others, if you're on the fence about starting a podcast, just go ahead and start doing it. And if you do 20 episodes and you hated it, stop doing it. <laughs> like, but I mean, you never know. everything you create is a learning experience. You know, I create other stuff outside of Adweek um, that I'm not going to advertise on this podcast because that would feel weird and strange. But I think that creating is really important for people. You know, sometimes things don't work and that's fine. I think I think sometimes we're too stuck in this idea of like, you have to create something and it has to be the best thing ever. And you have to make all of your money off of it and be extremely famous. And everyone's going to love you from like for having done it. But that doesn't happen with most things. And if you're like getting in your head or like preventing yourself from creating something because, you know, it's not the right idea and you haven't gotten to the, like the thing that's going to have you make it, well, you're not going to make anything, you know? Yeah, it's, it's that old cliche, I mean, but it's very true that perfect is the enemy of good. And, and if you try launching a podcast and you want to, like Christina kind of jokes, but is is very right that our first few episodes were not, go not good, you know, not great. <laughs> uh, we got really good feedback on it, but we go back now and we're just like, oh, we hadn't figured out our mic settings. We hadn't figured out this. We, you know, we were still doing this. That's the only way you learn, though. If you just like try to get that first episode perfect, it'll you'll never put out a first episode. Yeah. Uh, and I, I really I want to go back, and I have gone back and thanked uh, the people who really motivated me early because I kept wanting to be like, oh, let's get it just right and let's record the perfect few first three episodes. I'm really glad we didn't do that because otherwise we probably still would not have launched that podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so. For sure. Well, thanks to everyone who has been a listener and to, especially to all of you who've left, left reviews on iTunes. That has been wonderful. We love reading through those. And I encourage you, if you haven't, uh, please do so because it means a lot to us. And it also helps new listeners discover the show. Uh, and uh, thank you, Christina. Thank you, Stephanie, for coming on the show. That was. Uh, did you guys have fun answering those? Yeah. Yeah. It was nice to break from the format. And David and Christina, I just want to say big congrats on making it to 50 episodes. 
Ooh, well, thank you, Steph. And uh, high, high five through the mics, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as soon as uh, when Tim's back, we'll congratulate him too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Save him a piece of cake. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you both. And thanks to everyone for listening. We'll be back next week uh, with our usual format. Our theme music is by Home. This week's episode was produced by Christina Monlos. Thank you again for that, Christina. And we will be back next week. 